Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Shades of Brilliance. I'm your host, Sierra Venable. And wow, if you tuned in last week, it was all about the new year and just the interesting start to 2024. I feel like since 2020, it's just been like nothing new. I, I was not going into 2024 with my shoulders hunched. I knew instantly it was going to be a crazy year. And I think Gypsy Rose is what really confirms that for me. And I'm really concerned about that woman. Um, I almost said girl. I meant woman. And I just, Lord, the internet is just going to tear her apart. And I don't want to see that. And so it's just been, it's been a weird start to the year. And considering that weird start to the year, I'm back in London, so excited, but also kind of not excited. Let's get into it because I had a lot of mixed feelings coming back. Not that I didn't want to be here or like be a part of my life, but just like London is a lot like New York where the city kind of molds you over time. And I wish I could explain that. Anybody that's lived in a big city can kind of relate where your first year to two years are not the highlight reel that you thought they were going to be. And I have to say that for London, the first three months of living here, it was like, I mean, a blissful highlight reel. Like, I just was saying yes to everything and not because I felt like I had to, but because I wanted to. You know, I felt like I really wanted to put myself out there and meet new people and just like immerse myself instantly. Like, don't overthink. Get out the door. You know, and I'm one of those people who is such an extrovert that like if I do things and it doesn't feel wholesome or feel fulfilling in any way, it feels like a waste. And then I beat myself up for like, why don't I have friends yet? Why don't I have this yet? That was not my experience. Like when I first moved to LA, I was just like in this weird cycle of depression where I had to be alone for my mental health, but I didn't want to be alone. Like I wanted to have friends, but like I couldn't even have like surface level friends. Like it felt like everybody that I was meeting for the first, not, not everybody, but like a lot of people that I was interacting with just were so different from me that I couldn't really be myself. And like, obviously I ended up making a lot of good friends and, you know, a lot of people now that I would consider good friends, but it really does kind of take all of your safety rails off moving to a big city. And it's the best thing hindsight, but going through it sometimes can be very painful. Like you can feel the growing pains like little by little and it can feel painstaking, but it's awesome. It's honestly like the best. So London has been the opposite. I felt like it was just party, 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 like just so much fun. And I think your mind is like on vacation mode because again, it's a new country. Like I've never lived in Europe. Europe is so new to me. So again, it just feels like some kind of luxury vacation that I'm just getting to live on. And now it's starting to feel more real. Okay. I flew back from California, took a red eye from LA, LAX um, to Heathrow and, you know, left at like 11 p.m., landed in Heathrow at 6 p.m. It was already dark, honey. Like there was just something about it that I was just so dreading. And it wasn't London. It was like my independence. Like I was dreading having to be independent again. Um, And I've never really felt that. Typically, I like wanted to be out of the house. I wanted to be independent. Um, And I have these like rose tinted glasses for what that meant, as all teenagers do. You know, you just think, oh, I want my own apartment and I want my own this and I want my own boyfriend and my own this and that and everything. And now I'm starting to see like, this is difficult having so many choices. Like I am a firm believer that we have so many choices, even if our decisions are limited or like our options are limited in reality, there's always something to look forward to. And there's always a choice that we can make to like stand by ourselves. And so as I get older, I'm like, oh, this is overwhelming because I could do anything. And this fear that you're going to mess it up somehow. So I just was like, oh my God, I have to go back an adult. And like, how do I know what I'm doing? And how, like all of my like senses of safety, I realized were coming back off. Like the training wheels were coming back off. When I first moved out to London, I did not feel that way. Shocking. Most people have that shock when they move to a new city. But I think having an experience in LA before moving helped me so much. A lot of my city training was done in downtown Los Angeles. So I am used to just maneuvering all types of situations. 
you know, getting myself to safety, you know, okay, that looks weird. We're going to move this way. It's a part of like city culture. And so I'm used to that. If anything, London felt more like a safety net than LA did. The city is planned excellently. So everything flows in a certain way. Now, look, the buses will break down. The tubes will have moments, but like in general, it's such a great city. It's planned very well. So I think, again, I, I didn't notice some of those little kinks or quirks. And now I'm realizing I'm actually in my life, right? Like those first three months were very me in my life, but it was everything was new, you know? So it had a different, like, you know, simulation type of experience. Now I feel like, I'm in my life again. Like, oh, I don't want to cook tonight. You know, it's not, oh, I'm cooking in my London apartment. It's like, oh, I got to cook. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, no, I hate when things become normal again. When things become, you're used to them. I hate that. I want everything to always feel new and fresh and exciting. And so I've been trying to do little things to keep myself, you know, to smell the roses, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I left LA, I left my mom and I said goodbye and got back on the flight and came back to my life. And I think this time it feels like an unknown. Everything this time around feels like a huge unknown. I'm slammed into the thick of my master's program. You know, I had so much more better of a balance that first three months because it, they eased us in. Now I feel like I'm slammed in. We have all these assignments to do and it's not just assignments like, oh, get your homework done. It's like your life's work, like things that you want to actually think about and actually perform well on for yourself. Like this is my career here. This is what is going to direct, you know, my next steps as an artist. Like this is really important stuff. So everything just has this added layer of like, who am I and what am I doing? And it's really tough navigating that around other people. Because I think a lot of us are in that same boat where we're all kind of like, what am I doing? You know, and a lot of us have different experiences. Some of my peers have had work, a lot of work experience. So they have like clients and like they are booked and busy and they have apartments and they, you know, and I'm 22. I'm like, girl, you know, like we're all just in different lanes. And that's always how it is, right? Like whatever environment you're in, you're always in a different lane. You're always in your own lane. And it's getting to the point where it's difficult to stay focused on your own lane and just having to be a lot more intentional about like the decisions that I make. And like, you know, I do want to think about this and why am I not honoring my need for X, Y, Z? So, you know, I'm I'm back in, you know, the life, <laughs> the life part of life, right? Like this is what it is. It's this constant like managing of things and oh, it's not to bore you guys. I feel like I'm starting to drone on and on now. But yeah, coming back to London had a lot of anxieties and I'm I'm easing into it better. The jet lag is officially better. Um, first two days were horrendous. I, I have really bad jet lag where like I will start spiraling and it's not even like a huge spiral. It's more of like a, why am I here? Like, why is, why is this important? You know, like, do I really have friends? Like, I don't think I do. You know, like these like contorted thoughts like are not real, but you believe them because you're like, well, why else would I be thinking that? You know what I mean? And I just, it's, it was just, I was making myself so crazy and, and I was confusing myself because that anxiety brought a lot of other things up to the surface that typically had been settled, right? So like old relationships, old, you know, people in my past I was thinking about and I was like, oh my God, should I have done X, Y? Like, no, you know, so just trusting that lane and the path that you're on it just, it all came up in like, you know, the beginning of January, back to London, back to school, back to life. And I'm realizing that I can do anything, like the sky is the limit. And that's actually the problem. I realized that at 22, that's the problem, that the sky is the limit. You know, we've got to start making choices and sticking with them and letting life show us our next steps. You know, like, I'm so sick of self-help. I'm so sick of this idea that all of us are inherently flawed and have so many issues and are inherently effed up. What if some of this is natural? Like, what if it's not trauma? What if it's not that something is wrong with you and you're a flawed person? Like, 
Some of this is just growing pains. And at 22, you're kind of at the mercy of your growing pains. I don't think that you can like self-help your way out of a growing pain at 22. So this is just like the thoughts I've been having the last few days. Um, Currently today, I'm excited to be back in London. Honestly, I'm excited to just like go out this weekend and get into the fun part of London again because I basically got off the plane and started, went to school immediately. So I'm looking forward to planning some trips and like, just kind of having fun with it again. Like I'm allowed to have fun. I'm making the right choices, you know, being more intentional in some ways, but also remembering that it's important to be in the present moment. So, I mean, that's what we're all trying to do. So with that being said, let's do some current events. Okay. I'm doing this new thing in my podcast, y'all, if you're new here, where I'm going to do a little intro, kind of open up about my thoughts for the year, and then we go into current events, okay? And then I go into a question of the day. So current events this week. Oh, Kylie and Timothy Chalamet are dating and look in love. They were at the Golden Globes, and I was scrolling through all these like cute little videos of them, or maybe it was just one video, and everybody's trying to get them mic'd and like hear what they're saying and they're guessing what they're saying. And I just can't like, it was so intimate looking their conversation and the kiss. And I feel torn in these situations because on the surface level, I want to be like, Oh, like how cute is this? And then I remember like, okay, these aren't regular people. Like I hate to say it, but like Kylie Jenner, Timothy Chalamet. Oh, I don't even know about Timothy, but Kylie Jenner, like, I don't know that there's a a level of privilege that can even be ascended to. Like her family owns the media. I mean, why am I looking at this and going, oh, how sweet she's kissing him. Like, it just, it kind of makes me cringe when I start kind of glamorizing these people, but it was cute. Um, What else is happening? Oh, the Stanley Cups. You guys, I cannot. So something that I think is really funny, funny is The whole big water cup thing is so uniquely American. I don't know that Europeans drink water. (laughs) I'm just going to throw it out there. Do y'all drink water? Because they, when you go to a restaurant here, they'll give you like a little tiny, like scotch glass full of water. And they, that's like for the whole meal. You know, like they're just not drinking water. Americans are obsessed with big cups and just everything big. And something that's really funny is the Stanley Cup craze, where basically society in this like late stage capitalist type of experience, everything is geared towards the children, but it's products that should not be marketed towards children, right? Like makeup products. Why are all of the kids, you know, slathering drunk elephant on their faces? And is this a uniquely American childhood thing? Like maybe the kids in France aren't slathering, you know, bronze dew drops on their face. You know, maybe that's an, an American, you know, a product of the American experience. I don't know. I, when I was a kid, I don't remember feeling any pressure to wear makeup. Like there was no desire to put on. I mean, of course, you know, to have a few makeup brushes and pretend I was putting blush on my face, like sure, but not like drunk elephant, like retinol products. Like it's really getting a little scary, but it's kind of the thing. And honestly, I was talking with my mom about this and she said, yes, Yara, like kids mirror their parents. They mirror what they see their parents doing. And so if their parents are scrolling TikTok and they're watching people do makeup videos, that's what they're going to want to do. She was like, that's exactly how you were. Like you wanted to play with a cash register and, you know, play business like I was doing. I had an easel when I was a kid. I wanted to play teacher. Like that was my thing. And it's interesting how the imagination of a child is evolving through social media where we have, it's almost like our lives are being lived through these frames. And if the frames of our existence right now are, you know, tanning drops for the face, big old Stanley cups that can fill 84 ounces of liquid, you know, that's, that's what they're going to want to do. And so I think we end up demonizing children. Children are innocent here. It's the adults that are the problem, right? Like the kids are going to drink out of their Stanley cups that they begged their parents for, and they're going to put, you know, retinol on their face and they're going to be fine, right? Like it's imagination for them. They're in innocent play. 
it's the adults I'm concerned about. Like, it just makes me sad. Like, I, I feel like I was the last generation that really played outside and like had a bike, you know? And that's not true. I see kids on bikes all the time. But I'm realizing that as society becomes more closed off, especially American culture, you know, the fear of gun violence, the fear of all of these, ugh, just these pits of society, it's like it becomes really expensive to raise your kids in a certain type of village. And or that's what it looks like. I don't have children. So I'm just speaking from what I see. But I think people are really starting to question childhood because I really think that's what's next on the docket as adults is like, what happened to childhood? And why are all of us secretly craving it, including the adults, right? It's not the kids. You know, they're just playing with the colorful fluorescent marketed beauty products. Like, of course, like it's marketed towards them. Um, but we're the adults that want to play. You know, that's kind of what I'm getting from a lot of these like social media trends of people just complaining on the internet about things that, you know, when we were kids, we played with bar bikes. We also went to the roller skating rink and listened to Little Wayne. So there was an imbalanced mix of our childhood as well. Um, so that was something that I thought was interesting. A lot of just spiraling over the internet for the kids and what's happening to the kids. And I don't know that, I mean, I again, I can't speak for other education systems, but I know for the American education system, the kids are struggling to read. And this is really like phase one in any type of control over a society is, you know, people not being able to read well. And I just loved, you know, everybody's been spiraling for months over the kids not being able to read. And this grown man, I forget his name. I want to say his name was Oliver. Like That wasn't his name. Gosh, I'm going to forget it. Um, he you know, makes this TikTok video where he had some important legal documents that came in the mail. And because he can't read that well, he went to the local library to ask somebody to read it to him. And he documented it and said, you know, I hope that teachers show this to their kids that, you know, this is the what happens as an adult if you don't know how to read. But also it's okay to ask for help. And it kind of like healed the internet because everybody was like, oh, wait a second. Like, we're all going to be okay. Like, let's not lose all of our brain cells, but it's kind of hard to not. So I get it. Um, last current event, Saltburn. I finished Saltburn. What a good movie. I went on a whole thing on my Instagram story. So if you watch my Instagram stories closely, you're going to be like, okay, we've heard you say this, but what a good movie. My initial thoughts. Now this will probably change over time because I'm already changing my thoughts on Barbie, but that's fine. Saltburn. I felt like it's such a grotesque movie and it wasn't grotesque the entire time. So I don't want to label it grotesque. I felt like it was, it had a, oh, what kind of feeling am I getting here? It Eerie is not the right word, right? Like it had this weird glittering mirage and the direction was so amazing. Like I will say that throughout... <clears throat> Throughout the movie, I really admired the direction. And I feel like, and I want to say it was a woman director, correct? I want to say it was a, a woman director. And you can tell when women direct movies. And this is, I think, why I loved the Barbie movie. Because Greta Gerwig, even though she basically made a big commercial for plastic dolls, because that's what kind of what I think about Barbie now. Like, let's not even get into that right now. Um her eye as a woman captured so many layers that like typically male directors don't include or they miss it altogether. And so I'm loving this idea. Yeah. Emerald Fennel. She directed the, oh, and here's the correct term. It's a black comedy psychological thriller film. So good. That's the exact terminology that I would use. Psychological thriller. And I love a psychological thriller. That is my type of horror movie um, where you're just kind of, you're not scared. There's not a lot of jump scares, but your mind is like set on one solution. And then like the opposite happens and you're kind of like, whoa, that's salt burn. Very excellent commentary on the rich and not only, not only the rich, but the aristocrats, right? This class of people that owns politics, that owns everything now, right? And it got me thinking, does the bourgeoisie exist anymore? I don't think so. You know, the bourgeoisie were the 
essentially the rich people that owned labor, they owned production, and they created this idea of aesthetic selfhood. And really, they invented slash supported capitalism through making everything commerce. So their culture became commerce. And I think I want to say that term is coined from like 11th century France. So, you know, this idea of a bourgeoisie has been around for a long time. And I think over time, we've started using bourgeoisie as a synonym to mean middle class. Bourgeoisie and middle class are not the same. Like, at all. And I think that's really evident in movies like Saltburn, where, you know, oh, we're clearly talking about the aristocrats, right? Like, we're not talking about bourgeoisie, people that are, I guess, what you'd call new money, right? The people that have ascended this capitalist ladder, but are not considered, you know, political powerhouses, right? And that's what's crazy now is that, you know, a Kim Kardashian can like waltz into the president's office. Like, I don't think she's doing that. But the fact that like they can just dabble in politics behind the screen is just kind of scary to me because typically the aristocrats controlled all of that. And now most countries and governments, I feel like, are owned by corporate companies. Right. But oh, my God, Saltburn was just that. It, it, it involved that really traditional type of aristocrat that just had never, never thought about losing power. And so the idea that this little poor guy was going to come in here and, you know, kill all of us and take our wealth. Oh, there's no way. So it was it, it honest. And I have to say, as somebody who was not an aristocrat, I loved it. I laughed. I couldn't believe that people were saying they were traumatized like there were some really bizarre scenes but it it was to build up in the really the unmasking of who Oliver became and who he was and god i just loved it i really did love it i thought it was a great movie and i understood what the director's point was because you cannot land aristocrat and do it sweet right we are so conditioned to glamorize these people and there's nothing glamorous about being a billionaire. Like, and I think that's important. Like there's a huge distinction between billionaire and millionaire where as a billionaire, you're not exploiting, you're not just exploiting workers. You're exploiting your family. You're, you know, sabotaging people that you so-called love. And there's a lot of sexual abuse. I mean, we are seeing in the headlines right now, there's all of this stuff is unfolding, continuing to unfold about Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, it, it when you think it can't get worse, it gets crazier with these people. And so I thought Saltburn was just the funniest but best movie to come out right now. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I do recommend it, but it does have some grotesque scenes. So just be aware of that. I think when I, I watched on Amazon Prime and it said it was 15 and up, and I was like, uh, 15 and up is not a good enough age restriction. I wouldn't let my 15-year-old watch it because there are some really grotesque scenes. Like, it's pretty grotesque, but that's that. So that's my salt burn analysis on a quick whim. Um, the question of the day quite literally is tea time. My good friend, and I know who um, submitted this question. Uh, love you, girl. She says, tea time, which is hilarious because I first read tea time and I thought to myself, are we talking about like British tea? No, I think she just meant like tea, like spill the tea. And I have to say, you guys, I don't have any tea. I think that's the tea is that there is none. I am starting to live my life so aligned that I don't have tea. Like there is no tea. There's nothing that I'm hiding from myself. So there's no tea. And I think a lot of that, what has to do with that is the fact that I'm not dating anybody. There's something about men that just create a lot of drama in your life. And then it becomes tea, right? Like he did this to me. He did that to me. This guy on my roster did X, Y, Z. No shade if you have a roster, but that's not me. Like, I am so at a place with dating that I'm over it. You have no idea. Like, I cannot be bothered to actually pretend that that's something that I want to waste my time with. And so I'm in my own lane. 
literally in my own lane, hopping off the jet at LAX, flying back to London, doing my MA program and just trying to like really be present with my life. So I would like there literally is no tea. And I've thought about this for a few hours now before I started recording because I'm like, okay, like, let's try to make some tea. Like, why would I do that? So it's okay if there's no tea. I'm going to just say that if you're living life and there's nothing to nothing to be feeling drama over, then great. And if you do have some drama, we've all been there and, you know, it happens to the best of us. So that's really all I have to say about that. But let's move on to the next segment because we have a lot to discuss today in today's actual segment. So let me get off of Saltburn and all of these other antics and get to the real the real meat. So the actual topic of today's podcast is I don't even know what to title this you guys. I feel so scattered all over the place. I'm finally starting to unravel a lot of my actual identity because I realize that living growing up in the west is such a lobotomy. Really, really, really. And I let me give some context. So I have an episode um, on here. You can listen back to season one, episode 10, where I started, you know, I had just moved here and all of my friends in America are like, tell me, tell me, you know, oh my God, everything about the UK, do it in the podcast. We will listen to every ounce of it. And I've, you know, since then people are like, oh my God, we want to know about the dating, the this, the that, everything they want to know. Because it's it's such a privilege to <laughs> you know, be halfway across the world living in a different country in a different culture and just exploring and having fun, right? And so I have been, you know, observational, right? Like, well, I'm going to see and I'm going to... And I've realized lately that I am so American that it actually... Um, I feel betrayed by it. And I, and I don't want this to come off because it is pretentious to say that. And I know that holds a lot of weight considering the geopolitical factors that are um, being carried out in the world. And I think it has made me so uncomfortable in terms of making friends. I have friends here from all over, genuinely. People in my program, my master's program, from so many different countries. And I'm glad that they did that because it helps so much to have an a really deep understanding of where people are coming from. Um, because you can't choose where you're born. You can't choose, you know, um, you can't choose something like that. You can't choose the language. You you don't. And so it's just, uh, it's the most like powerful thing I've ever done. Coolest thing I've ever done. But I definitely can see how as an American, I come across so pretentious and it's really hurting my feelings that that's the truth. Because in America, I'm not American. You know, I have had so many, um, not issues, but, you know, whenever I am trying to relate and so desperately trying to connect with Black people here, whether they're from Europe, whether they're from the UK, whether they're from wherever, uh, it, it's like there's this huge elephant in the room. Like, I can't see it, but they can. And I honestly think it's just the pretension of being a United States citizen. And can I just first say a few things, a few little disclaimers about this? Americans are not um, supposed to care about what's happening in the world. If you look at the way we're groomed, our media, our media alone, you have to try so hard to know what's happening in the world. That's by design. Because they want us to keep supporting the genocide. They want us to keep blindly supporting, you know, all of the corruption. And so, you know, we learn language in high school, but it's just for fun. You know, it's they don't want us to actually have to actually learn French and be able to communicate with somebody in France. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is that at any point in time, if we need to be able to do something, we need our people to rally behind. And so... You know, growing up as a black person in this system, there's this layer of resentment and rage because everything that America is, is built on the backs of enslaved black people. And so, you know, like I said before, 
I don't think that we're considered Americans. Like me and all my black friends in the States, we have this camaraderie that we've built. Our culture has built. Our community has built. Even when we're surviving our own genocide, our own systematic um, struggles, you know, so we, we've never been, you know, oh, well, we're just pretentious Americans, right? Like we, we're very much like, screw this. We know the truth. And I realize that even that's a privilege. Like, even that, even, like, like my passport, I can't even get over the fact that my passport is a privilege. When you're traveling between countries and you have to see your friends go to a different uh, wing of the airport because, you know, they don't have a U.S. passport. They can't just scan it real quick and go through. Like, it's just... It's so, it's so annoying, you guys. Annoying isn't even a good enough word. It's like all of these systems that we're a part of are just degrading, degrading the way we live as humans and the way humanity is. And it's so easy to say that, like from an American perspective, but I really am trying to tackle this internally because it's honestly, I think it's changing. Well, of course it's changing me, but it's like, really, you know, everything about me is authenticity, authenticity. And, you know, I'm real. And I realize that here I have this layer of, uh, you're an American, right? Like you just silly little American go away. You don't know the truth about anything or, you know, and it's, it's been hard for me because I'm like, I wasn't even considered an American, two weeks ago. And now I have, I'm holding all of this representation for what America is. And sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm backing it up. Sometimes I'm not. Most times I'm not. But a lot of times I feel like I have to justify the way we are, especially for black Americans. I'm not talking about white people or white Americans or even any other culture for that. I, I try to specifically speak towards what it's like growing up black in the U.S. because it's not like, again, we are so held withheld from all of the fruits of the U.S., right? Like uh, we don't deserve anything. It's a fight for us to get access to education and to have good education. As a kid, I wasn't even considered smart. You know, I had teachers who wouldn't even give me the time of day because it was like, oh, you're black. Like you're just this black kid. There's these huge narratives about what it's like about what black people are. And so I was so excited to come here and like find my people. And oh, there, there are the blacks, the, the fellow blacks across the pond. But the problem is so much of the issue, the barrier to me actually coming across a, as a genuine person is the fact that I'm American. And so I've made it this joke. I've, I've tried to make these self-deprecating, <laughs> well, I'm an American. So I'm an American and it's not funny. Like I'm at the point where I'm just like, oh my God, I, I can see why people are so annoyed by us. Cause we just pop across and we are like, oh my God, is, do you have a croissant for breakfast? Like we're so annoying. And then I thought for a while, well, maybe that's just white Americans because a lot of, um, you know, what is it called? Like class pro- people, white Americans that have class privilege, right? Where they're, they can just travel to Europe. Of course, they're coming across, you know, pretentious because they have money. They're, they're, and on top of that, they're American. So they, the whole world into their mind is their oyster. I certainly did not think that I had internalized it that way. I was like, I, ha- no, I haven't, um, absorbed any of those American ideologies because I'm not even considered American in in America, right? Like we're, we're not seen as like human being, as, as human beings. So I just, I thought, well, that's like what white people come here. It's not. You guys, you guys, I'm realizing how bad the lobotomy is. The lobotomy of be, growing up a U.S. citizen and the duality between First of all, I shouldn't even be speaking this language. Like, you know how mad I am that I don't have any, any like genuine attributes? And so I, I literally had a black British person tell me, go back to Africa then. Like literally go visit and they'll embrace you and tell you what you need to know. 
And then I was like, wait a second, because that's betraying the resistance of like my family and like my specific ancestors. And so I've gone back and forth and I had this huge epiphany when I made my zine, the first like project we had to produce for um for my master's was a zine. We basically did 3000 words on anything and we had to like, you know, design it and make it this whole thing and my zine was about black resistance, specifically black american resistance where you know, we've just had to, we, we've had to build, we've had to create. And, and it's almost like America took advantage of that. So a lot of the perception from Black people, non-American Black people, is that we just sell our culture away. We just give it willingly because we don't care and we're pretentious Americans, but that's not the dynamic of what's happening. So I felt like it was my responsibility to stake my perspective as like the black American in the room. And, but what I can't get away from is the fact that even that is pretentious. And so I'm really struggling with my identity. I'm not going to lie. I really am. I feel narcissistic. And I'm, I, I genuinely have that fear, that reoccurring fear that like nobody will want to know you. All they're going to see is that you're American and they're not going to see anything else. And even though there's this glittering mirage of what America is, you know, and of course everybody can see through that. I thought I could see through it until I realized how much I relied on it. You know, everybody's happy. Everybody's great. Entrepreneur. Be an entrepreneur. You know, like, I don't know that that's the culture in Europe. I don't know about the UK, but especially in Europe, like, I don't even know. I know that there's there's semantics to this. I think the UK was considered Europe until they left the EU. But I know that their culture has always kind of been a little bit different than if you were to go to like Spain or France or, you know, whatever. But, oh my God, you guys, I can't. I'm so torn up. Like, I can't. It It's just, ugh. I don't know. I This is why I hate making this content because I end up just like spiraling and just not wanting to talk about it anymore. And I'm trying to keep going. I'm trying to like push through and articulate my thoughts. And like, it's just, I'm embarrassed. I'm so deeply ashamed, especially right now, especially at a time when the empire of the United States is falling apart. Like I'm cheering it on, but I'm also cognizant and hold I have to hold space for my family who are all caught up in this like the election the 2024 U.S. election is happening and I've already told all my European friends Donald Trump is probably going to be the president again because he's the only person that would stop Joe Biden from these genocidal tactics and that's what he's going to run on I genuinely think Trump is going to run on that I'll make all of this stop I'll put America first again and I'll, I'll stop all this nonsense because we don't need to go to war. That's what that's what he's going to run on to get his foot in the door again. So I don't know. I like I said, I feel like I'm I'm trying to balance um, the person that I came to be within such an oppressive system. And might I add that with being black in America, it's such an accomplishment to like for me to go to college and for me to, you know, even have the opportunity to be in London, you know, to be in London and to, um, you know, be an entrepreneur and be happy. And, you know, and I realized that even that is like a part of the problem in like a larger global sense. And I know that I can't, I'm not, I solely am not the reason for so many of these, um, like political, like global factors, global issues, but it feels like that. I think that that's a part of the American thing is like we center ourselves as the as the sun, moon, and the stars and everything. And I certainly have done that. I do that all the time. Still, like I said, I'll, me and my friends will be out. And oh my God, somebody pointed out to me that this weekend. He was like, Everything, every time you make a joke, you say you're American. He was like, every time you say that, I'm American, I'm American. It's because I'm American. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not funny. 
Like, it's actually not funny. And, um, yeah, I don't really know what more to say about this. It's really more of like a self-reflection at this point. And I feel bad because I'm making people listen to the American come to a self-realization. Like, everything just feels unimportant now that I'm an American. Because that's what it is. It's like, now I'm American. In America, I was not an American. And so I felt outside of this. I, I felt like, well, I'm black, right? You know, I don't know a single black person that says I'm American. We say I'm black. You know, we have had to um, sustain a connection to community, not to uh, country, but to each other. And so when I say I'm American, I'm picturing black, black culture, black people, my family, my ancestors. I'm not picturing the imperial war machine of the United States. But like a lot of that propaganda has certainly uh, rubbed off on the way that I live and the way that I see myself. And so it's like people are holding up the mirror to me, but I couldn't see it. I didn't want to see it. And so my new effort is to stop saying I'm American. So X, Y, Z. Because it's funny in the moment, but it's really not funny. It's like kind of funny, but it's really not, you know. So I'm going to try to stop saying that. Um, and I'm going to just walk the, walk the walk, not talk the talk, you know, because that gets you so far in the U.S. Talking the talk, that's all we really care about culturally is who said it on TV. That's who's right, you know? And I feel like we are in this age of truth where everything is coming out. I think that was my last, that was last week's episode. Um, I can feel it. And who is at the front of that phenomenon? Black people in America who is leading the, you know, letting the dirt out out of the rug, it's black people. So in our country, we're we're these like truth crusaders. So I I just thought that I was going to come here and have all these brownie points because of that. And um, no, there is no brownie point. The brownie point should be that the truth is revealed, you know. And so I'm starting, I'm going to have to start listening to stop talking and start listening. That's, that's going to be my challenge because I'm such a chatty Kathy and I just will overrun people with a bunch of meaningless voided speak, honestly. And I think it's kept me from a lot of connections with people where they're just like, she's annoying, you know, and I didn't want to be seen that way. I didn't want, I don't, Actually, forget about how I'm perceived. It's more about I actually want to be vulnerable, you know, enough to like actually build relationships here. I don't want to just come here, frolic around, record everything, and then be like, peace, you know? And so I'm having a real, uh, real difficult time with that, with the, with a, whatever this is. Um, Especially as somebody who, might I add, has not, I I am not some elitist, rich American. Um, Like, my family really has had to stand on each other's shoulders to even get to this point. Especially my mom. My mom is like my sun, moon, and my stars because she just, she is why I'm here. Had she not made ultimate sacrifices, I would not be here. And so I am here as being here is kind of like my trophy and I've been treating it like, oh, like finally I made it. And that has to be annoying to be around. And so I'm, I'm battling between, yes, I'm so thankful to be here. And also, oh my God, maybe don't talk about it so much. You know, like I'm having this, I'm questioning myself on what my boundaries are now with, um, I don't know how much I share because it's so not European culture to share and overshare at that. You know, it's so American to overshare. Me and all my American friends will just be like, and and guess what else? And you know what else? Even more, it's American culture to just talk yourself under the table. Clearly not everybody's doing that. There are like introverted Americans. I don't represent all Americans that are just like extroverts, but it is certainly American culture to position yourself as an important person. And 
And yeah, I'm not making excuses for my behavior. I also don't know why I'm punishing myself. I guess it can it, you can self-reflect and not punish yourself. Like, I don't think anybody is like mad at me. I think it's more of like, yeah, I'm just seeing myself differently, which is good. That was the point of coming to a different country. But I think that I know a lot of Americans who come here and frolic and they have an Emily in Paris moment and they go home. It was all for the people back home. And so I'm trying to actually soak in and absorb this experience for what it really is and not with these rose-tinted, like, American glasses. Um, because, like, even my friends and I will have a discussion about, like, their economic potential, you know, in, in our industry. We're like, we're in the same industry, but their birthplace affects the opportunities that they have. And, you know, America is positioned as the land of opportunity, but we have the same, as Americans, we have the same issues. Underpaid, overworked, uh, it, it's just not enough money. But what I will say about America is anybody can invent their story and make something out of it. And so that's what I'm doing. Like, that's what I've been conditioned to do. And I can see how that's off-putting um, to a lot of my peers because that's not how it works in their countries, at least even in terms of like a narrative, because a lot of that is just narrative in the U.S. Um, but it really is how we live, you know, go to the Big Apple and make it, you know, um, make something out of your story. Don't don't be negative. Be positive. You know, like, oh, my God, I it's wild to me. Americans don't complain. We don't, you get like two complaints with your friends and then you got to wrap it up, you know? And so it's so different for me to have to like see what my friends are talking about, not as complaints, but as like an expression of how they feel about something and how that's valid. That should be, that's allowed, right? Like I have to hold space for that in some ways. Cause in America, yeah, nobody wants to be around a complainer, you know? And it, they've conditioned us that way because they don't want us to know that the propaganda is propaganda. They want us to keep, you know, vying into these attacks as like, oh, what's good for the country, right? And so, of course, systematically, you know, they stop teaching us different languages. Like I did four years of French in high school. I didn't have to do that. Most, I think what's common in America is to learn Spanish. Um, and because I want to say Spanish is the second language in the United States, so Spanish is what is taught, but like I had the privilege of having a French teacher um, teach us French. So it wasn't like an American who learned a lot of French who spoke because that's that's who is teaching our classes, you guys, is typically, especially like in, um, in you know, in private schools, I feel like, or in um, like decent public schools in the U.S., it's Americans teaching a different language. So you miss all of those cultural um, contexts. But I had a French teacher, a French woman who taught us French, and she loved me. And I, I just remember her, I was going to write her a letter. I'm going to mail it to her because I feel like she has totally helped me. I didn't realize it until I got here, how much she helped me see the world a different way. You know, like she could see in me that I was just, um, that I was trying I really was trying to learn French. A lot of my friends were just like, whatever, when are we ever going to need this? Because that's the American thing, right? Like I'm never, a lot of Americans, you know, are never going to travel because it's one, it's too expensive to go all the way to Europe, across the world. But then on top of that, a lot of Americans don't want to, you know, because we're supposed to be so content with our own country, which is really a continent. I mean, to be able to go to all 50 states in a lifetime is a privilege, let alone to a different part of the world. And so I just, I didn't realize how, um, how much I had to learn. The world is so big and it's so much more than I thought it was. America has this way of, you know, crumbling everything down into that's it. <laughs> you know, that's all I need to know. If you really want to know more, you'll actually figure it out. So, you know, and then when you're trying to survive America, you know, nobody is 
trying to understand the nuances of European culture. Like most Americans are trying to survive imperialism because if you think we're not experiencing imperialism, you'd be wrong. A lot of that becomes internalized. Look at the shootings. You think that a country that is so good, that is doing so good and is such a has such a, a moral center has all these school shootings? No. It's an indicator that we're the problem. Right? And so, yeah, that's just my stream of conscious thoughts right now on being an American. I'm embarrassed. I'm mortified. And I always have been. I, but then again, I never thought I was American, right? I was outside of America. I was just peering in. They never let us in all the way, right? They used us. And they still do. They use black people all the time. You know, there's this phenomenon of hiring black women to do big roles and, and do big things in the United States. And then they'll just fire you for no reason. You know, like I was talking to my friends in Europe and they're like, yeah, you know, you're, the government can't just fire you like that. In America, oh, if you're if you're on somebody's bad side, they'll find an excuse, and then you sue them. You know, <laughs> like it's it's just this this cycle of supremacy. And I thought I was removed from it. I thought that I I'm not an American supremacist, you know. But yeah, I grew up there. I've internalized a lot of it, and yeah, yeah. So anyway, I um. <laughs> I'm like, that's that's the podcast today. I'm ending on such a weird note because I really don't know where I am with it. I wish I had a conclusion. I wish I could say, but here's what I've learned and and this is who I am now. But uh, that's not the case, you guys. I'm still going to have to walk through this. And maybe at the end of this year, I'll be able to have a different analysis. I'd like to not have to leave. That's my current uh, my current assessment. I don't want to have to go back to the U.S., in the middle of the 2024 election. I'm, no. No, 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 no. So we'll see. We're going to see where life takes us. But that that is today's episode, you guys. Uh, there will be a ne- another one next Friday. I'm glad y'all stuck around. And if you're one of my peers, my non-American peers who's listening to this, please give me a chance. Please give me a chance. I'm catching up. I'm getting it. It's soaking in. Um it's not my intention to be a burden. If I keep making these like American jokes, um, just feel free to tell me that they're annoying because I'll stop. Um, because again, for me, it's like, a, it wasn't a self-deprecating thing for me because again, I did not see, okay, look at that. I'm just, I'm going around in circles again. I'm trying to justify my, that's my excuse. And it really is like, I wish if, and I, that's the other thing. I don't, America does such a good job at protecting the reality of what it is. So a a lot of Europeans, I will say this, that a lot of Europeans have no idea what being Black in the United States actually is, what the actual experience is. Um, Because it's wrapped up in this weird uh, American dream fallacy. And it's, yeah. So anyway, (laughs) new episode next Friday. Thanks for listening. I feel like I'm cutting this conversation short, but I have to, y'all. We are over time. And again, when I have a conclusion, I'll just make a new episode. So that's that. Bye.